You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So we're now in the second week, the middle narrative of this uh, last chapter, the Gospel of Luke, the resurrection narrative. And Luke only has time to tell so many stories as he's gone on for quite a while now. Maybe he's getting short on papyrus. I don't know. But he's he's picked out a few certain stories to share uh, with Theophilus about these post resurrection events in the life of Jesus. And so now we're in this middle section. Last week we talked about uh, the, the, first, um, the first day of the week, Easter Sunday. Jesus is resurrected. The women get together the spices and oils and they go to anoint 
into his body to try to keep down on some of the smell. And they go in the tomb and, and Jesus is gone. And they, they run back. They see the angel and say, you know, what are you doing? He's, he's risen, just like he said, uh, three days later. And so then they go running back and tell. And Peter goes and runs and looks in the tomb. And he walks away marveling at all that's happened. And they're, they're just astonished by what's going on. And so then we get on into this next section, which is I've just read, is actually a fairly long narrative for Luke. I mean, it's, it's quite a, he takes a lot of time uh, telling this story, uh, this post-resurrection story of Jesus. These two disciples, they're walking uh, to Emmaus and a stranger back home from Jerusalem and a stranger shows up. And spoiler alert, that stranger is Jesus. They don't know it's him, but as they're walking along, uh, this, this stranger comes along with them. And you can almost put yourself on this walk with them. I mean, Luke is, a, is writing a, a good story here, a good narrative. You can imagine yourself with them. They've, they've come to Jerusalem for the Passover, right? And then there's this teacher named Jesus that they all, they, they highly respect. They, they think something's going on with this guy. We're going to hang out with Jesus, be around him and his disciples all at this Passover. And, and they think this is possibly when Jesus is going to rise up as the Messiah and, and they're going to see the fulfillment of this nation of Israel coming back to the world power that, that they see that it should be. And instead, what happens? This Messiah, Jesus, is turned over by their religious leaders to the Roman authorities and he's executed on a cross. And so they are time to go home. And they, they gather, they get together and they're, they're walking home uh, either to Emmaus as their hometown or, or by way of Emmaus. But they, they, after resting on the Sabbath, that Saturday they rested, it was, they weren't supposed to travel on the Sabbath, it was unnecessary travel. They rested, and now they're heading home on this Sunday. We don't know exactly where Emmaus is. doesn't matter. It's not the point. They, there's a few places they suspect maybe it was, but likely it's just a small town on the way to somewhere. But they're going by, uh, going by or through or to Emmaus, but we know it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. Luke records that. So it's a, it's a decent walking distance, but totally doable in a day. They, they take off, and because I walk 10 a day, so I know seven's quite possible. They, they walk seven miles uh, to, on their way to Emmaus. And as they're going, what are they discussing? Well, how about all this just taking place, right? What in the world happened? Who was Jesus really? If he wasn't this Messiah that we thought he was, well, then who was he? What's going on? Who is this Jesus? And most importantly, they're discussing what does it mean that this guy we thought that was the Messiah, there now is a report from some of these women and other disciples who went and he's not in the tomb anymore. What in the world is going on? And they're discussing and, and you can imagine the questioning and the wonder and the speculation and trying to just, what, what is even going on? They're discussing Jesus who he is and what he has done. And I'll just put this as a side note. That is never a bad conversation to be in. It's always good wherever you are, on the way, at home, uh, no matter what you are doing, when you are there, when you're on the way, when you're at home, to take up the conversation about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, to think upon him, to meditate upon him. That's always a good conversation to be in. But 
here these disciples are. They're speaking and walking, and who shows up but Jesus himself. Now, they don't recognize him. Why? How do they not recognize Jesus? Just last week, I was emphasizing, you remember, the reality that Jesus' body is gone, which is telling us that the body that Jesus is now in has a very real relationship to the body that was. There's this continuity between who Jesus was and who he is in his resurrected state. But yet, here he is walking with the disciples, and they don't, they don't recognize him. And so, you know, you kind of think, what's up with that? Now, we could waste a ton of time trying to figure that out. But verse 16 tells us why. Verse 16 says to us, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It wasn't that they couldn't, and in fact, they do later on, right? But they are kept for some reason we don't know, and I would chalk it up to God's restraining their eyes from seeing Jesus. Why? Well, we'll maybe figure out why, but if God is able to raise Jesus from the dead... He's certainly able to obscure their eyes for this moment from seeing Jesus from who he really is. And now that's what they've done. Some commentators emphasize, well, they were just so overcome with grief that probably they weren't even looking around. They're just, they're, they're upset and so they're looking down and they're not even looking at Jesus. Well, I suppose maybe, but that, that just really isn't in the text. What, we, what is told us is that their eyes were kept from seeing him. And I think it's possible that this was done for a specific reason. That their eyes are kept from this seeing the physical Jesus in his resurrection state. I think it's, they do begin to see, they do see Jesus, but in this moment, they're kept from seeing the physical Jesus. What reason could there be for that? Why, why are they walking along and why are their eyes kept from the physical scene of Jesus? It's going to happen later on in the narrative, but at this moment, it doesn't happen. Jesus doesn't just show himself to these disciples. He spends time with them first. And I think it's very important what he spends time doing with them. He doesn't just show himself to him. What does he do? He's, he takes them back through all that's been recorded in the Moses and the prophets, showing all the ways that the scriptures point to Jesus, that the scriptures point to this man, Jesus, him veiled from seeing them, them, them veiled from seeing him as he is, but he's walking them through the scriptures because more important than them seeing the physical Jesus which they are going to become eyewitness testimonies. But in this moment, more important than seeing the physical Jesus is that they see him as the fulfillment of all that has led up to him. More important than right now seeing the physical Jesus, they need to see Jesus for who he really is in the scriptures. This is recorded to show us, I contend, the importance that Jesus places not in the physical act of seeing him for faith, it is not most important for your faith that Jesus corporally, bodily show up here so that you can see him and now believe in him. It is most important for our faith that we see Jesus for who he is as revealed in the scriptures. 
that the Bible is pointing us to this one who's going to accomplish all of these things, resurrect from the dead, ascend into heaven, and Jesus shows up. And the most important thing for Cleopas and the other disciple to see is not the physical body of Jesus, but Jesus as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. This could be huge for you. This is huge for all of us. Jesus thought it was more important for them to see who Jesus was according to the scriptures than it was for them to see him in his resurrected state. They'll go on to see him and they'll become eyewitness testimonies. But the first priority that is in Jesus' mind for them is that they see Jesus for who he is in the fulfillment of all of God's plan. Next week, I hope to take us through some of those pictures that Jesus, we, we don't know for sure. Unfortunately, it'd be wonderful to have that little exposition of Jesus walking them through what Old Testament pictures he brought up. He certainly, certainly didn't go through the entire law. That's just a seven-mile walk. You can't get through every word in the Old Testament to the, to, in that seven-mile walk. But he, he picks out some scenes. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at some of those. But we don't, we don't know exactly what he does point out. But this week, I want to notice and, and draw our attention to something else in the text. And it's first, it's the almost gospel of Cleopas. The almost gospel of Cleopas, right? We know one of them is named Cleopas, right? Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas, it says, answered him. Are you the only person that doesn't know what's gone on? Now, some people, here's a little fun tidbit if you care. Uh, John, some, some commentators think this is the Clopas mentioned in John 19, 25. Remember, it, it talks about who's there at the cross, and it's Mary, and, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. And some commentators think that that Cleopas is this Clopas. They, they, weren't as, they weren't as caught up on spellings as we are now. Like today, your birth certificate, your spelling is your spelling. But back then, it was kind of like, you know, I mean, it's like Wycliffe. Even in the, the 1500s, that Wycliffe Bible tr translator, his name is spelt like 10 different ways. Even then, they didn't have these uniform spellings. So it's possible that this Cleopas is Clopas, who is the husband of Mary. And so maybe... This is Mary and Clopas or Cleopas walking home from Jerusalem. But we don't know. That was just for fun. You're welcome. That was free. That wasn't even anything to do with what we're talking about. But here they are, this Cleopas or Clopas and his, maybe his wife Mary or maybe just somebody else heading home. There's no way to be certain. They're walking and talking. And Jesus asked for this account of all that happens. And here we get Cleopas's almost gospel. His almost gospel. Because he talks about this reality of who Jesus is. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of irony here because Cleopas is like, don't you know what's how? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And it's like, this is the guy who actually is the only one who knows what's going on. <laughs> but how are you the only person that doesn't know? No, no, this is the guy who actually knows everything that's gone on and all that it means. But Cleopas answers Jesus' question, tells him all that's happened from his perspective. And his telling of the events is very interesting. He, he has the story down, right? Jesus of Nazareth, a specific man. Not There are lots of Jesus's common name back in that day. But this specific Jesus of Nazareth is mighty indeed in word of God. Uh, very respectable, powerful individual. Uh, mighty uh, indeed in word before God and all the people. 
And then the chief priests, what do they do? They condemn him to die, and he's crucified. And they hope he's the one that's going to redeem Israel, and now he has risen from the dead. There's so much good content to what he knows of Jesus. It's almost a gospel, but it misses the whole point of, of who Christ really is. He's so close. You get to the end of the story, and you think maybe he's got it down. But the reason why we know it's an almost gospel is Jesus ends by saying, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Cleopas is not commended for his retelling of the gospel events, of the narrative of the life of Jesus. He is, he's, he's rebuked, which brings me to, I think, one of our main points out of this passage in this almost gospel of Cleopas. And it is the idea, the, uh, the, the main point of you can be incredibly close to Jesus and totally miss what he's about. You can be incredibly close to Jesus and totally miss him. It's astonishing. But it happens in the gospels many times that you get this, re this retelling of, of these people. Are, they're, they're, they're around Jesus. They, they see all of his deeds. They see all his mighty works. And yet they totally miss what he's doing. They see him, but they don't see him. Jesus uses that phrase, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. And there's a passage, uh, Matthew chapter 7, which talks about at the end of all, at the end of days, the judgment, there'll be these people who come along and say, well, didn't we cast out demons in your name? We taught in your name. We did all these things in, in, in knowing you. And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never, I never knew you. They did all these things for Jesus. They were incredibly close to Jesus, but totally missed him. An almost gospel isn't the gospel. Cleopas, he had his thoughts about what he wanted the Messiah to accomplish. He's going to redeem Israel. This is what the Messiah is going to do. There's a certain set of realities that he wants the Messiah to accomplish. And really, the realities that Cleopas just wants to have happened. He wants the Roman authorities to be thrown out and the Jewish nation to be ushered in and to have this, this reign of peace. Uh, they, they're saying this Davidic reign of peace with the Jewish empire, J Jewish uh, nation ruling. But Jesus isn't that kind of Messiah. He doesn't go the way Cleopas wants him to go. Now, Cleopas has great respect for Jesus. He's even a follower of Jesus, Right? He has expectations of Jesus. He has hopes for Jesus, and yet he missed, missed the real Jesus. It's, it's incredible. But the truth is, I think that this is where many in our context live today. When I look around Mount Air, I look around Ringgold County, there's, there, there's, that is a reality, I think, in our context. There is a great familiarity with Jesus and many would even give a favorable opinion of Jesus. But it is an opinion of Jesus which basically brings them what they want, a Jesus who brings them what they want and stays out of the way otherwise. He, he brings them what they want. I like Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. I think he's a great guy. I think he taught great things. I have great respect for Jesus. He helps me. He does what I want him to do. And he just kind of stays out of my way. It's an almost gospel. It's a Cleopas gospel. Great respect for him, but you can be incredibly close to Jesus, have great respect for him, revere him even in a certain way, and totally miss what he is about. 
Sometimes on a Sunday morning, we pray for the indifferent. In the pastoral prayer, or the elder leads the prayer. We'll, we'll pray for the indifferent. It's actually in our, in our bylaws to be concerned for the indifferent. Those who are connected in some way, but yet stand back. Connected, but stand back. Connected, but stand back. And there are those who have this connection here. They have this familiarity with Jesus for who he truly is. But, but they don't see him for who he truly is. They have this connection, this familiarity, but they don't see him for who he truly is. And why do I say it that way? Well, because when you see Jesus for who he truly is, you are provoked to worship. And that worship is focused out from yourself and upon the one who truly deserves it. Midwest Christianity has devolved in the kind of Christianity that says this, I really like Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. He helps me when I have problems. I don't know what I'd do without him. I am so glad Jesus loves me. But what's missing from that picture? Sounds so good. Cleopas's answer sounded so good, and he gets rebuked. That sounds so good. What's missing from that picture? Well, what's missing is a real grasp of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That he's not your life coach. He's not your buddy. He's the God of the universe incarnate in real time to save sinners from themselves. Tr there's missing a truthfulness about him that provokes repentance, that lays you low. Who am I to deserve that Christ would come and die for me? There's a humility that comes from really seeing Jesus, not familiarity with him, but a real seeing of him that lays you low that puts you on your face before God, saying, why would God, my Savior, do this for me? There's a humility, there's a repentance that is provoked, and there's a worship that flows then, because you know that this humbled sinner that you are, God in his sovereign desire, his sovereign choice, comes to earth and saves sinners on his own prerogative. So not only are you laid low, but you begin to honestly worship I can't stay silent about this God who rescued me. How could I stay silent about all that he has done for me? That's the difference between having an almost gospel, which really thinks a lot of Jesus and is pro-Jesus, you know, and, and is for all sorts of nice things, but has no experience with the being laid low before him and, and raising our voice in worship of him. That... He's not your life coach helping you achieve your dreams. He is the God-man accomplishing his purposes, securing the glory of God for all eternity. That is his purpose. Our joy is in being called into that glorifying of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What Cleopas needed to see was that life was not about a Messiah accomplishing Cleopas' desires. It's tough to, to, we all are, we're hardwired to see the world this way. Well, what a savior is, is someone who comes up and gives me all that I want and, and works my purposes in the world. And Cleopas has his desires for what he wants to have happen. He wants this Messiah. He, he, he's got to see that the Messiah is not about accomplishing Cleopas's desires, but a Messiah who is accomplishing his eternal purposes. He was focused on this Redeemer for Israel, and he missed the Redeemer for the people of God. 
not the nation of Israel, but for this body of people, these individuals, this people of God. So many think that walking with Jesus is allowing him to help you with your problems. And of course, once he's done that, you'll give him credit for helping you with your problems. You'll give him credit, but really the point is for Jesus to help us with what we want. And what that does is it makes Christianity, that gospel is totally disposable. Totally disposable. A God who just helps me get what I want. Because you grow up and you learn, you can pretty much get what you want on your own. And that's the reality. I can get what I want on my own. Turns out, many say, I'm fairly happy just doing what I want to do. I don't need Jesus to make me happy. I don't need any help. I'm fairly happy just doing what I want to do. You know, I don't want to... I don't want to engage uh, God through his word. I don't want to engage God through the gathering of other Christians. I don't want to engage God by spending time in prayer and worship and singing songs to him. I don't want to. I'm perfectly happy on my own. And having an almost gospel, being incredibly close to him, you can totally miss him. You can totally miss him because you aren't seeing him. The individual who thinks that isn't seeing Jesus for who he truly is. They say, I'm fairly happy just doing what I want to do. There's no repentance. There's no humility. There's no real worship. The kind that says, I lay all I have aside, and all that matters is that I have you. One of the points that we gather from this walk with Jesus is that there is one figure at the center of history. There is one person that this is all about. There is one figure at the center of all that matters, and that that individual is none of us. It isn't you. It isn't me. Jesus is the centerpiece of history from the garden to the new heavens and the new earth. That centerpiece is Jesus Christ. He is first and foremost. He is preeminent in all things. Colossians 1, we could look at there, but for sake of time, we won't go there. Cleopas only got there when he saw Jesus for who he truly is. That's why he walks him through this whole narrative of Scripture. All of these pictures we'll look at next week of who Jesus really is. Not a Messiah to help you onto the way to what you want, but a Savior accomplishing his purposes, which brings you a salvation better than you ever thought. A salvation better than you ever dreamed. You think you want, and we think we want a Savior who helps, with all of our, helps us with all of our wants and desires. And Jesus shows up and gives us not less than that. He gives us something far greater. Something far greater than just fixing your worldly problems. He's going to fix this eternal relationship between sinful man and a holy and righteous God. What Jesus shows up to do is not help all of our little picadillos, all of our, which are not picadillos to us, but in the scope of life, help us with all of our issues. It's something far bigger, far greater. The gospel is better news than that. He's the Savior accomplishing His purposes, bringing us a salvation better than we ever thought. Do you see Him? You, I know it's just us here on a Sunday morning, it's cold out and everyone else is whatever, whatever but you, Right now, do you see him? I have to ask, do, am I seeing him for who he is? Not who I want him to be, but for who he is as the God worthy of worship. Do you see him? We'll answer this. Do you hate your sin? 
Do you hate your sin? Do you ever get to the end of the day and just despair at the ways you weren't obedient, at the ways you didn't love him like you should have, at the ways you loved yourself instead of loving him, at the way you, I mean, we could list off thousands of things. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate to disappoint this one who died to save you? Do you ever say no to what you'd like in order to say yes to him? Do you ever, has your heart ever been inflamed with love for him as he is? Not for what you want him to do, just for who he is. This God who launched this mission to save a sinner like me. Is your heart ever inflamed in just seeing that, that he would die for me? Well, here's the reality. What we think we need is a savior who will solve all of our right now problems. Bring us peace now. Fix our relationships now. Give us health now. Stop our loneliness now. Lighten our depression now. But, the present, but to present the message of Christianity in that way, one that says that those are the main problems Jesus has come to solve, is to make the gospel about less than it really is. Jesus has come to do a work far greater than that. It is only through seeing Jesus for all that he is, the Savior who has come to magnify God by rescuing sinners, it's only in seeing him as that that we find our true hope and freedom. The question I have to consistently face, and I want us all to face this morning, do we, do you, do you know Jesus in this way? Is he simply the Savior by means of bringing about the things that you want? Or is he your Savior because he brings you what you most need, himself? Just for the sake of him. Just because he is who he is. I mean, encourage you to be engaged on these two fronts. When we talk about the indifferent, praying that God would open eyes to see Jesus for who he is. Pray for your unsaved loved ones, for the indifferent that are around you, that God would give them eyes to truly see. But secondly, make sure that your eyes are eyes that see. Make sure your eyes are eyes that are seeing and truly beholding him. We must take care of our sight of Jesus. God, give me eyes. Give us eyes that we would see Christ for all that he is. Are you walking in proximity of Jesus? Are you walking in, in the region of a Jesus you are comfortable with or with a Jesus for who he is, the Lord of all? This morning... Like every Sunday morning at First Christian Church is a morning to come forward for communion, seeking exactly what we've been talking about, that I would see Jesus for who he is. It's a moment of repenting for not seeing Jesus because we're desperate to make him into what we want him to be instead of what he is. He's far more than that. He's the Savior who died to forgive you for that very idolatry. So this morning we come confessing, I don't see you. I want so many lesser things out of you than for who you are as you are. We come confessing in repentance, humbly, and lifting our eyes that we would truly see Christ for who he is, the eternal God, the Savior of mankind, the only one deserving of all that we have. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes this morning to see you. This is a supernatural work, God, and I... I pray for a blessing upon my feeble efforts this morning. Father, I am 
desperate for a fellowship in this community, in this church. I am desperate for a body of people who see you for who you are, who worship you for who you are and all that you have done, who, who worship you in spirit and in truth. God, that is only done by a work of your spirit, giving eyes to see you. So God, do that as only you can do in this place, in every heart, hearing this morning. Do this work, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.